Southern Skies. Online Media. G'day folks and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 37 of the program where we look at the world of aviation from an Australia Pacific point of view. I'm Steve Fisher and with me as always is Grant McHeron. G'day mate. Hey, how you going mate? Very, very good. Now we've had a fantastic conversation to put into this episode. Uh, we're going to do something a little bit different this time around. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I'm going to learn to restrain my natural urge to call flight attendants trolley dollies. Yes, and uh, if you ever heard the outtakes from uh, the previous episode where we had Grant's sister involved, who was previously a flight attendant we all know how sensitive she gets to uh, grant's rather disparaging term <laughs> it's her term she told it to me first i've just never let her forget it <laughs> what well, little brother's for mate uh grant mccarran forever getting himself in trouble <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so what we've done in this episode is we've found three flight attendants to talk to, one from the 1970s, one from the 80s, 90s, and one who's currently still in the business. It was a really fun conversation. We recorded it uh, several weeks ago now. We've had this one stored up for a little while. Uh, I will say just up front, folks, that the audio quality for some reason is not as good as uh, we'd like to have on our shows. Uh, Unfortunately, Skype did let us down with the conference call a little bit, but uh, if you can look past that little uh, glitch, the content is uh, really, really good, and uh, we had a, a great conversation with these three ladies, so Grant, perhaps uh, if you make sure that your uh, tray table's folded and your seat back's upright, we might just get straight into it. Yeah, I'll stop hitting the call, the waitress call. I mean, sorry, no, 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 I'll be nice, no! Oh dear. We're just going to fade to the interview now before we get ourselves into any more trouble. And joining us on the line from Sydney is Grant's sister, Tanya Tracy. G'day, Tanya. Hi. And also with us from Melbourne is Janine Murdoch. How are you, Janine? I'm well. How are you? And also joining us on the line from Sydney is Amelia Kelly. How are you, Amelia? I'm great. Thanks, guys. Ladies, thanks very much for joining us. Now, uh, we might just start off with a bit of a history. Uh, we might start with you, Amelia, and uh, you can tell us about your experience uh, as a uh, flight attendant. Okay. Well, um, I've been flying for about five years now. I first started flying with a regional airline. Um, it happened purely by chance. I happened to run into their cabin crew manager actually at the airport and got into a conversation with them and they suggested that I should apply. So I did and the rest is history. I started flying with that airline and a couple of years later moved on to a bigger international airline where I've been flying and I'm actually um, just transitioning over to a different division of flying so I'll be doing um, international long long haul flying soon. And we should we should just mention too folks I probably should have mentioned at the start that uh, a lot of these airlines have policies where uh, you know their staff can't really identify who they work for so in case you're wondering why Amelia has to be a bit vague there that's why that is. <laughs> Amelia uh, why did you decide to become a flight attendant? I've actually always had an interest in aviation 
and flying um, ever since I was young. I actually had wanted to get into the pointy end of the plane as a pilot um, since I was very small. And I actually uh, went that way with my schooling. I studied towards um, CPL subjects and that kind of thing. And it just happened that while I was working after high school, fell into the airline um, cabin crew side of things. And I actually found that I really enjoyed it and I've stayed there. So eventually I would like to get my pilot's license for fun, but at the moment I'm happy um, in the cabin serving passengers and, and having a good time there. So it's worked out really well. It's combined my people person skills with my love of aviation. Tanya, do you want to go through the same kind of spiel for your background and, and flight attendant world? Sure. Um, well, seeing as I no longer fly, I can name names. Um, <laughs> I started in 92 with Australian Airlines, um, flying domestically out of Melbourne, and then after a year transferred to Brisbane, even though I was told that someone would have to virtually die at Brisbane base before I'd get a transfer up there. Who knows what the airlines think, but they changed all their policies and I got a transfer a year later. Flew out of Brisbane for a few years. Um, then the merger happened with Qantas and I transferred to the international division and flew for eight years. Cool. So you went pretty much everywhere that Qantas flew, yeah? Pretty much. Um, well, as you'd all know, there's a seniority system with bidding. And I didn't get many Hawaii's because that's all done by the Mother's Club that have been there forever. And I didn't get to go to Vietnam, unfortunately, and I didn't get to go to Canada either. They only flew those routes for a limited time. So everyone was bidding them. I was too junior. And then I ended up my last few years flying, I um, took the move up to first class. So the routes were even more limited, of course. Yeah, so when did you get, what year did you get out? 2000. Okay, and uh, why did you get out? Motherhood, in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> also, I was studying, um, I was studying for a degree in science and naturopathy, and I was doing it externally, and that was fine for a while, and then I found with the jet lag that I'd study while I was away and retain nothing, so then I also put my hand up to do nursing, simply because when you do nursing through TAFE, you get paid to do it, and I thought, well, I can study and get paid at the same time time and basically wanted to become a mum so it was time to close the door on that chapter. Okay cool. Janine let's let's get the same info from yourself. Uh, well I started a bit earlier in uh, 1974. Uh, it was just a transition time uh, I was with Ansett and they were going from the DC-3 up to the, the big new jet the 727. They needed a lot of crew at the time. Um, I wasn't particularly drawn for any other reason that I had a very boring job with the government and thought that flying would be very exciting and interesting. Uh, it was very hard to get into. It was still a prestigious uh, job at the time and I flew for 12 years and absolutely loved it. I was there at the time when Red, Reg Ansett still called us his girls, and but then shortly after that he started calling us old boilers. But... Uh, <laughs> I loved flying. It was like a family, particularly when Reg Ansett owned, owned it. And I, I left because uh, for the same reason, motherhood, I had um, my daughter. I decided that uh, I wanted to be a mum, a full-time mum, so I left um, and really had no regrets but enjoyed my time there immensely. Cool. Okay, so, so about what year did you leave? I left in 86. Let's start off with selection. So... Uh You've decided you want to go to be a, uh, a flight attendant. And uh, Janine, how did you go about getting selected? Well, it wasn't easy. I did apply both to um, TAA at the time and ANSET. Uh, ANSET came back with the answer first, so I jumped in on that. 
it was very difficult in that you had to be the right height and the right weight. They did like having nurses, hairdressers, um, so they had a they had a preconceived idea of who they wanted as their trolley dollies or or whatever. So we went through that time when we were weighed every month to make sure that we hadn't become overweight. And if you were overweight, you were weighed every week. You also at the time couldn't have long hair. You had long hair. You had to have a week. Things started to change. I left my government job, my very boring government job, where I was earning $100 a week and I did go back to earning only $30 a week and that was difficult but it was still considered to be quite a prestigious job at the time. And of course then we went through through the uh, the strike where um, Reg called us um, old boilers and things changed then. Our wages increased, uh, they still weighed us but you didn't have to leave if you had children or became pregnant. A lot of things changed at that time and uh, I suppose for the best because there were a lot of girls there that um, I remember going through anorexia just to try to keep their weight in line with their height and, you know, it, it was very archaic but that's the image that they wanted for their girls. That's, that's pretty full on. <laughs> it was. Particularly for me, I was always one or two kilos overweight so I was on that baggage um, uh, machine being weighed <laughs> once a week and... <laughs> I would uh, purge myself the night before and then I'd get onto the aircraft and stuff myself silly with some of that dreadful <laughs> airline food. <laughs> okay. Thank goodness things have changed. <laughs> yeah, you, you didn't almost... have to go through any of that, did you, Tanya? Yeah. No, but you know what, when, you, when you're talking about late 70s, early 80s, it just seems horrendous to me that it took that long to change. I mean, this is something that you would have expected to change in the 50s or 60s. But anyway, I'm not going to get on to women's issues now, but <laughs> thank goodness I didn't have to go <laughs> yeah. through that. <laughs> well, that's, that's, um, the, that's the we, thing in this we enlightened were... time, isn't it? That, it, it, you know, here in 2010, it just seem, seems completely foreign, this concept that uh, I know. anybody uh, would be treated this way. Well, the interesting thing is when I was flying with Qantas International, um, that was when we called them the retreads, the ladies who <laughs> had to leave when they became engaged, married, had children, whatever. They had to leave. And they took a class action to Qantas in the 90s and won and were reinstated their jobs at full seniority that they would have had had they stayed for those 20 or 30 missing years of their career. Mm. Hence, they were called retreads. So <laughs> they came back in right at the top of the pecking order. And let me say, they were wonderful. They, I mean, once they were trained up, they were very slow to start with. Um, service had changed a lot. But my goodness, they were true flight hosties in the totally respectful sense. They were wonderful. They had manners. They were graceful. They, they were just lovely to work with. But they came in at the top of the seniority and they pecked their eyes out of the rosters and um, took their families away on trips with them for a couple of years, then left again. And good on them, I say. <laughs> work it, work it. <laughs> exactly, they did. <laughs> but if, if, if you really want to get an eye-popping look at what things were like in the past, have a look at uh, some of the reports that were made back in the 40s when ladies were being hired to work in um, the during the war, when the guys were off fighting the war and the ladies were uh, keeping everything going back home. And uh, there were memos to manage 
managers about how to look after the ladies, how to deal with them and things like that. And <laughs> you read it now and your eyes just go nuts. It makes what, yeah. uh, what Janine was talking about look calm in comparison. <laughs> and it's, it's amazing what 40 to 60 years worth of, of change can do mm. in people's attitudes. You just got to look at billboards now on the, out on the street compared to even 20 years ago, they yeah. would have been ripped down in a half, you know? <laughs> so yeah, obviously quite a few differences there in, um, in what went through for well, selection. Just in that alone, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, quite clearly, uh, I've flown recently and quite clearly it's not happening that way anymore. There is there is the aspect of, oh, well, we missed that view, but you know, it, it does seem to be a better world. And so, Amelia, you, you, how do you find that area? Um, well, with regards to the hiring, uh, the height requirement is actually still there. That's primarily for safety reasons. We need to be able to reach the equipment on the aircraft. Yep. And in the case of regional airlines, you can't be too tall because obviously you'd be hitting your head on the uh, cabin roof all the time. So Indeed. now they generally seem to have a minimum and a maximum height requirement. I know Qantas have a maximum. They're one of the few airlines that still do. And now it seems that they're moving, a lot of airlines are moving towards what they call arm reach. So it doesn't actually matter what your height is so long as you can reach the minimum required height. It is good for those shorter girls who were maybe a couple of centimetres too short in the old days are actually um, getting an opportunity now because they can reach the, the equipment. They just didn't meet that mark on the wall. Um, obviously, the weight requirement has out the window, um, in Australia at least. Um, unofficially, I would say it probably does play a part. I mean, obviously the airlines can't really recruit by looks anymore, but it does help if you're nicely presented and well-spoken. So um, that part of it hasn't hasn't really gone away, but obviously now you'll find that they recruit using a group session. So you'll actually go, you, you apply through the normal channels, which seems to be done online a lot these days. You'll go to a website, put in your details. If you're lucky, you'll get called for what they call an assessment day or a group day. Um, Virgin call them Virgin Recruitment Days, which has a rather unfortunate acronym, but, um, <laughs> oh, <laughs> but you'll, you'll go to a hotel or somewhere nice like that. They'll have a group. You'll do group activities, you know, how you interact with other people and if they like all of your, um, if they like the way you act with everyone and then you might come back for an interview one-to-one or two-to-one. Okay, that's that's interesting. And, and when you mentioned reach, my first thought about reach was um, someone trying to reach across three three seat rows like well, uh, three breast seats and so on that does uh, help. You, you're getting a lot of three four three seating arrangements and things like that and so yeah long arms to get to that person by the window when you're in the aisle kind of help yes that's that's when you say you need to meet me halfway there <laughs> <laughs> now um just rolling back, Janine, you mentioned the strike. Was that a uh, flight attendant strike or was that mixed in with the um, the airline pilot strike? No, this was ours. Um, we just decided that uh, we needed more money. We didn't get a lot of support, unfortunately, from the pilot. I think the flight engineers were quite supportive, supportive of us, but um, the pilots just tended to uh, look after themselves. Uh, mm. And uh, so... Uh, we, we got a lot of bad press. A lot of people thought that uh, it was just this glamorous job and, you know, we were well paid and, and that was probably all our worth. So it, um, it cha- that's the start of the change. That's when everything did change and uh, it became, I suppose, a little bit more professional. Before that, as I said, we were registered girls and we were treated that way. It was like being in a family. Um, it was a lovely, it was a lovely feeling, but it was just uh, very antiquated. So uh, the strike really did change it all. Okay, when, when was that strike? 
Um, uh, well, I was called an old boiler and I was only 20. Uh, it was <laughs> only a few, a few months after I started. So I started in January 74. So it was at some stage during that, during those early few months that I was there. That's interesting because then back in, um, in the early 80s was the pilot strike when they went out on strike for exactly the same reasons. Mm, yeah. And a lot of the girls, uh, were very supportive. I mean, there was a lot of girls uh, were married to pilots, of course, and, but, uh, the pilots, we're always the upper, you know, the upper level. We were just the the cabin crew, I guess. Uh, we we really quite supported the, the the guys, but I always remember the lack of. They didn't want to know about us when we had our strike. That's a that's a uh, leading me to a question for open for everyone here is is that the same now how how are the um like you janine you're saying that back then it was the pilots they were in the front pointy end they were above everyone and separate from the cabin crew and you know that's your problem you deal with it all that kind of thing how, how is it now and how was it for you tanya well different for us i suppose um Everyone's different though. I mean, we used to find there were pilots who were great that would interact with us, support us. Um, then there were those that were very much us and them. Um, the company didn't do much to foster that by having um, separate limo transfers for the pilot and the crew from the airport to hotels, etc. even sometimes putting us in different hotels. Then um, for your annual emergency procedures, they tried something called CRM, Crew Resource Management, which was designed to bring the pilots and the flight attendants together in sole problems and so forth that net that didn't work really well but um, at the same time though it works two ways because there's cabin crew out there that have a very much an us and them attitude to the pointy end as well and then there are those of us that grew up in flying and air force families and seem to get on with the pilots but yeah so it's a two-way street just if i could okay. just add one thing we we had a lot of war pilots the the guys that yep. had a flown, um, you know, uh, in Korea and what have you. But those guys were fantastic. They were so skillful. They were, um, they were normal guys and they, they embraced the flight attendants, but there was always going to be the, the, the younger ones coming along. But, and it was hard for them to get in. I understand that, but it was always, you know, they were just, uh, we were down the back. We were there to, you know, look after things, but they were the ones that were really important. But these, those post-war pilots, they were fantastic. Okay. So how about for you, Amelia? How are you finding it? Um, I have to agree in that there are, um, there's a great variety. You get some guys and girls who are great and some who are not so great with the way they deal with us. There is a lot more focus on um, interaction between the cabin crew and the uh, flight crew. As uh, the girls said that we do annual CRM training with the flight crew. So that will involve um, an activity. Um, the last one I did, we actually had given to us a flight scenario um, with certain information and then we were separated into two rooms and we had to deal with the flight from our perspective and then come back together and tell the other group so we would say to the pilots what actions we had taken on the flight and what information we would have passed on to them and it was quite interesting because we both had different perspectives of what was important and what wasn't and so it's really interesting to see from their perspective how things operate obviously now post 9-11 it's a little bit more difficult you pretty much in and out of the flight deck to take the meals if that's what we're doing that's really the only time we'd go in there unless there was an emergency going on whereas before that it was a bit more two-way street with regards to pilots coming out during the flight us going up there to talk to them that kind of thing so it is um is a lot different 
Yeah, I would have thought that maybe post 9-11, they'd be a little bit more, uh, you know, there'd be a bit more understanding that both sides can help keep everything in the air, so to speak. You know, the the, the cabin crew can help keep the unruly passenger from uh, yes. ruining the pilot's day. Yes, I, fi- I find that. Um, an interesting thing that I've noticed is it used to be the passengers would notice uh, the pilots a lot more, whereas now they, they could go a whole flight without seeing them. They're just, you know, the pilots are a voice on the PA and um, some of the flight crew like to come out of the flight deck at the end of the flight and wave goodbye to the passengers and I always think it's quite funny after a long flight passengers are disembarking and they say to the captain oh thanks for a great flight you know the service was fantastic <laughs> and we're standing there thinking where was I for the last eight hours <laughs> <laughs> who did what <laughs> <laughs> it was like oh, I mean he got us here safely but it was me that brought you those 5,000 Diet Cokes with, with six kids of ice just like you asked for but, <laughs> but yeah you're right it is it is um, even though we, we are a lot more physically separated by the flight deck door I do find um, that the pilots are a lot more open to our suggestions or um, concerns, um, which it can only be a good thing. Well, the next That's... time I hop off a plane, I'll say, well done, Captain, you program that autopilot superbly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, it's a very brave it's a br- very brave tech crew that actually come to wave goodbye to everyone after a Captain Kangaroo landing. <laughs> <laughs> well, moving along, then you've made it in, you've met the requirements. How did you get trained, Janine? What, what did they do to you to get you ready to, to be a flight attendant back then? Oh, we had our flight simulator, which was just across the road from the um, from the airport, and uh, we would uh, practice our PAs. We would practice our emergency procedures. Uh, we spent long hours in the classroom. We went to the uh, the Brunswick pool uh, and did our, our ditching in there, which was lots of fun in our little orange bumblebee uniform. <laughs> we had a trainer, um, and she was with us for more. Oh, I don't know, probably a couple of months, I suppose. At the, in those days, we had to do full service, um, perhaps on a 50-minute flight. So they got their drinks before, they got a full meal, and they got their tea and coffee afterwards. Uh, so that was lots of fun, particularly when you're new. Uh, we had to repeatedly, whenever we had a chance, uh, go into the to the toilet there and put on, reapply our orange colour-coded lipstick, uh, make sure that our hair was and makeup was uh, properly done so that we could then go out and any spare moment on the aircraft was actually spent talking to our passengers, making sure that they were comfortable, making sure that they had the pillows, the magazines, anything that could make their trip a lot more enjoyable. So this was what was drummed into us hour after hour after hour of uh, this was really what we were there for. Of course, safety was the, the most important thing, but also we had to be seen to be, you know, looking after our passengers, their every need that they, they had. Uh, I remember doing a New Guinea flight wearing a gold lame jumpsuit um, so that uh, we looked very glamorous so so that the passengers would feel that they weren't on a flight. They were actually at a restaurant having dinner. Oh, wow. And- <laughs> yeah. And you used to have to do a full service in 50 minutes? Full service in 50 minutes. And uh, many a time we would be left standing for landing, which I then should not really admit to, but many times left <laughs> standing for landing with tray tables, well, with trays in our hands because uh, 50 minutes is not very long when you're feeding a full aircraft. And in those days, they were full just about yeah. every flight. Wow. That's that's pretty impressive because I know like going from Melbourne to Sydney these days, you get a, a little box thrown at you and a, maybe a drink service and that's it. Oh, no. No, well, I mean, these flights were uh, from, from Melbourne to Launceston. Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> oh, yeah. So that's, 
that, you know, and, and you've prayed to not having a tailwind because that made it even shorter. <laughs> These these days it's like you know hey catch 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 you know throw, <laughs> throw an apple here you go woohoo there you go. <laughs> I remember when I was being trained, I got into trouble because uh, we were on a flight from Melbourne to Mildura on the on the little friendship, and because I was only very very new and all the full aircraft, uh, we had to do the full service, and I and I got. Um, my trainer and I got into trouble because we actually put the bar drink, which was often just a mixed drink. You'd have to put the spirit and the and the mixer there, along with the ice, the sizzle stick, the coaster, and the napkin, as well as the peanut, onto the tray. And because it wasn't done prior to them getting their food, we both got into trouble. Oh wow! Oh, yeah. <laughs> and all all that in a little Melbourne Mildura run, which is is like you're up and you're down. That's right, and that was not the most um, uh, user-friendly uh, galley there either in the friendship. It's just, it's just a little cubby hole. <laughs> yeah, no, that is pretty small. We were we were just speaking to Deborah Laurie the other day, the first female pilot with ANSET. Um, yeah, and she, she was, yeah, she was telling us about uh, some of the fun, but she used to love flying the friendship and some of the names for it and things. But, yeah, I, I've been in them a couple of times, and I, I remember they were pretty cramped. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> At the other well, end of the extreme, Tanya, what's it like on a long-haul flight? So you're running across to Los Angeles, and that's, what, about a 12-, 13-, 14-hour flight? Yep. How do the crews mm-hmm. rotate? Uh, what are their duty times, and how do they how do they organise that? Because I, I surely you're not on duty for the, that whole flight in, in cabin. No, you're not. What happens down the back in economy, um, you do your first meal service out. Um, say it's the evening flight, so you serve dinner, um, drinks first, of course, all of that. Um, then you divide into left-hand side right-hand side. It's up to the senior down the back, but usually, you know, they'll pick a side, left-hand side off first, whatever. Say there's however many hours, four hours between the end of the dinner service and the midnight snack, you'll divide that time into half. Um, One side will go off for the first half, the other side will go off for the second half, then it's all hands on deck for the next meal service. And then you calculate the time between the end of that service and the beginning of the breakfast service into LA, um, divide it in two again, and off you go, left-hand side, right-hand side. Okay, and and in the old days that was... Uh, you'd, you'd sit in a business class seat or something like that? Well, on the 400s, um, you've got the bunks up in the tail. Yep. Um, on the classics, it's usually a front row of economy with a curtain around it um, okay. by the business class galley, which is the pits because the passengers keep coming in and opening the curtain and asking you for things. Um, <laughs> yeah, and if you're in first class, you just sit on the jump seat. And try and sleep there. Well, if you can't be bothered running the gauntlet of economy and going up to the tail, yeah, you just have your time <laughs> off sitting at 1R. And now you've got the triple sevens and the A three eighties, which not have, been on them. Mm. Yeah, well, they they have some pretty impressive crew rest areas from the right, photos I've seen. Right, they'd want to because it was terrible. <laughs> yeah, I've heard a number of crew talking about uh, you know they're they're trying to get their rest with the curtain closed and people just coming and opening the curtains. Oh and, yeah, they come and open the curtain. Give me coke. Give me coke. You know, yeah. and, um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> or trying to hand. Well, that'd be on the return flight from Los know. Angeles. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> Or even yeah. worse, stealing your blankets. <laughs> oh, yeah. No. Oh, what blankets? God, always <laughs> running out of blankets. <laughs> <laughs> so, so on the on the training front, Tanya, um, did you go through something similar to Janine? 
Very similar to what Janine went through by the sounds of things, yeah, yeah, almost the same. And I was having a giggle at her talking about the 50-minute full service because when I started with Australian Airlines, we did the same thing. We flew with a trainer and um, any serv- any um, flight time under an hour, we didn't do a full meal except for Canberra. Sydney, Canberra or Melbourne, Canberra, 50-minute flight, they got the full meal service, first-class hot meal, everything. And I was just having a giggle listening to Janine thinking, oh, God, I remember that. was <laughs> terrible. Because of the politicians, of course. Exactly. Yeah. I was like, mm, mm. yes, pollies have to get their service, don't they? Mm. Mm. Except for um, Gareth Evans, I will say, who never wanted service. He was always too busy working. Well, well that's course, a pleasant Gareth, change. Gareth, Gareth is <laughs> far too important to speak to anybody. I always used to like him on a flight. And we did the same thing where um, you had to be seen active in the cabin. There was none of this loitering down the back having a coffee. You'd have to be walking through offering magazines or chatting to the passengers. So I used to pray that there'd be a baby on board that I could pick up and walk up and down with just to look busy. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went across the long haul to Qantas and it was such a revelation that, oh no, once the time was off, you could just go and sit down, read a magazine. You didn't have to be out integrating with the passengers. They didn't want to talk to you anyway. They wanted to watch their videos or, you know, if they wanted to talk, they'd come to the galley. Yeah, that always did seem to be the case because you can't talk to someone on a long haul anyhow because you know, everyone around them is trying to sleep. Well, this is it. They're sleeping, they're watching a movie, you know, whatever. Yeah. They don't want you in their face, basically. <laughs> if they do, they'll seek you out. <laughs> and how have you been, Amelia, with, with yours? Um, with the uh, training side of things, uh, the first airline I worked for being a small regional airline, uh, we actually just did um, classroom training and for emergency procedures we trained on board the actual aircraft. So there'd be 10 of us on this little commuter plane with our instructor and next minute we all come jumping out the door because it's quite close <laughs> to the ground. Um, and, of course, the passengers on the other flights nearby would be looking thinking, what on earth is that doing? <laughs> You know, but, uh, <laughs> Do they have fun at that airline? <laughs> yeah, but it was it was quite fun um, that side of things. Um, I think for that airline we did uh, four weeks of ground school, um, and then after we finished ground training, we had um, ten sectors of line flying with an in-flight trainer. So uh, you were supervised on your first flight, but uh, on a two-crew aircraft, you were pretty much your trainer and you, and you were it, and you just got thrown in the deep end. And like uh, Janine and Tanya were saying, this company actually also did a full meal service on a short flight. So it quite frequently was less than 50 minutes. Um, it, often it was about 42 to 45 minutes, so you'd have a hot hot dinner, tea and coffee, drinks, all that kind of thing, plus clearing up. And I still clearly remember my first flight, the way out we had 11 passengers. So I was lulled into a false sense of security by that because on the way home we were full to the brim. (laughs) And it was just like they described. I felt like I was throwing meals at passengers and throwing drinks at them. Before I knew it, we were snatching the trays back. And um, it was chaotic about it now. (laughs) I I don't know how I did it. Um, I think about uh, the flying that I've done more recently and it's a lot more leisurely. And I'm Mm. thinking I I get panicked about handing out a sandwich on a a 50-minute flight and I'm thinking I, I had to unload ovens and and load bar carts and and get these meals out and and smile while I was doing it and say hello, wait for someone to have their exact change. And um, it's just reminded me of um, coming through with tea and coffee. And quite frequently someone would say, oh, I'll have it later. And I'd be like, "Um, there is no later. No, you won't. (laughs) (laughs) So that was good fun. Um, And then going on to um, the airline which I've most recently worked for was like two different planets. 
seven to eight weeks of training in a cabin simulator with the, the full shebang, um, wet drills in a pool, not in our uniforms, which I thought would have been quite fun. <laughs> but <laughs> Give um, an old one a go. <laughs> yeah, well, I've actually always thought it would be far more realistic to drop us in a pool with full uniform on, but they, they don't do that for some strange reason, um, something about drowning. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so it was a totally different experience, but both well worth it and both really fun despite the stress. <laughs> okay, so it sounds like the, the biggest change in the way the training's gone has been the uh, the simulators that they've got, because I've seen some of the ones at the Qantas Simulator Centre a few years back when I was there, and the pool simulator with a full fuselage mock-up and, and the uh, the latest fuselage simulators that rock and roll and can simulate fire and heat and all that kind of stuff. Have you, any of you had time on those? Not that rock and roll one, but we had the one that they pump full of smoke. And, okay. Yeah, the fuselage <laughs> in the pool and so forth, but um, and the, all the noises, the simulated crash noises, but not the actual rocking and rolling. I'd say I, mine I, was very similar to yours. I think we had the smoke and the simulated noises. We probably... I don't think they'd probably changed the simulators that probably much. Not, so you, no. and I, you and I probably were in the same ones. Might have been. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do know, um, I have seen one um, in Essendon, which is a 737 simulator. It's used by quite a few airlines, but I believe it's owned by Qantas. And that, I believe, is the more recent version, which has um, LCD screens in place of windows. So they can yeah. actually project an airport environment. Oh, right. And oh, they could project ah. smoke over over the um, over the door viewers and, and things like that. So you can actually see hazards outside the aircraft so it actually looks um it's quite realistic and and it does um have the smoke and the masks dropping for a decompression so it doesn't move unfortunately but i have heard from crew who have used one of those and they said it's quite scary <laughs> yeah they, they give you a good rock and roll apparently though the guys were saying they were just bringing one of those in when i was out there looking last time but no uh, tanya i remember you telling me a story a very long time ago in the early in, induction training right at the start where they showed you the crash movies yeah, they still do sometimes at EPs. Okay. Uh, yeah, do you well, want to talk about they'll discuss one of the more well-known airline disasters and, um, yeah, show you footage from that and interview crew and so forth. Yeah, nothing held back. It's not 10 o'clock news. It's the real thing, right? No, no, it's the real deal. Yeah, I remember there was one, God, years ago, I think it was over Hawaii. Was it United mm. where a door popped out or something? I can still use that one. They had an explosive decompression okay. and a couple of passengers got sucked out and they had to do an emergency landing into Honolulu and they interviewed the crew who survived afterwards and they were talking about seeing the lights approaching the runway and seeing them flash past as they landed and how the relief and it's so real as crew when you listen and watch interviews with crew who have been through a disaster like that it's terrible it really makes your blood go cold i think you can just so easily identify with it yeah and does that does that sort of weed out those who can't handle it <laughs> Um, if you're referring to me with the Erebus thing, yes, it did at the time, but I got over that. <laughs> oh, no, there was that. I thought I thought I remembered you saying there were a couple of new hires didn't come back after that. Actually, what they didn't come back after was um, the mock-up with pumping it full of smoke and donning the PBEs. That freaked a few people out. Actually realising what it would be like in a darkened cabin full of smoke and all that. Yeah, and having to, you know, get the overwing exit out, chuck it out on the wing, climb out, yelling jump, 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 all that sort of thing. They just couldn't do it they kept failing repeatedly and um they weren't they didn't want to leave they were asked to leave 
So yeah, I'd, I'd agree that's that's the scariest part is the um, the smoke and fire training. Mm. Um, if if you're not used to it, or if you're claustrophobic in any not claustrophobic, but if you're afraid of you know dark tight spaces in any kind of way, um, it's. I, I remember with ours, we actually got sent to a um, fire training facility that the fire department had, and they have a, a simulated building, and it's got all these little. Um, crawl tunnels and rooms and ladders and things and it's completely dark and they pump it full of smoke and that was very scary I had to, to really talk myself through that one so I, I'd agree that's probably the, the scarier part. Yeah we call mm. it the temple of doom in the department <laughs> I'm with <laughs> Yeah that's the worst part that's worse than going down the escape slides I think. Oh slides fun <laughs> I, I, thought, I thought so <laughs> um, You hear the stories when they're, when they're testing um, EVAC and things like with the A380 and the MD11 they uh, they, they do a full emergency evac. They have to do it for certification. And there's always somebody breaks an arm and, and a leg, and that's, that's in a semi-controlled environment. Yeah, but, you know, that, that's the collateral damage of getting everyone out. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's not just a walk in the park and a fun slide. You, you can't, no, no. You can't hurt no. yourself. Mm. They, they, they give us quite a comprehensive briefing. We're actually told you, you, you can't put your hands on the slide, but you wear protective overalls. Um, they actually tell you to hold the tops of the overalls on your knees mm-hmm. um, because the, the first reaction that you do when you hit the bottom is put your hands down and you'll lose, you'll lose your, your skin on your palms. So um, that's, why, that's, that's one of the biggest injuries I've, I've read um, in actual evacuations is, is friction burns. Yeah, from the slide. But if that's the worst thing you have after a plane crash, then then that's that's probably yeah. not that much to worry about. <laughs> Good point. I, I imagine uh, uh, it's something I haven't cons- haven't actually looked at and considered. But um, I would like to have a go of the emergency evac slides in the A three eighty simulator because you, you're so far up there. It'd be like evacuating the top deck of a seven four, wouldn't it? That's so steep. Yeah, exactly. The top It'd deck be... of a seven four seven is so steep when you that emergency slide. You wouldn't go down that right. for fun. You'd go down it because you had to. I think that's where the part in our training comes in. They tell us if someone stops at the top of the slide, you've got to hit them on the backs of the knees yep. to to pretty much get them down the slide. Yep, if if they're not the voluntarily, they're not vol- voluntarily going, you push them. Okay, uh, I guess that that uh, oh my god, it's so far down would kick in. Yeah. Yeah. So there's quite a quite a focus uh, in the training on um, uh, psychological issues to do not only with uh, what you're doing but with passengers. Uh, what other aspects do they deal with? Um, for instance, I know recently in my line of work we've had to do a conflict resolution uh, sort of module. How do they deal with that sort of stuff? Um, I'm not sure how it was for Janine and Tanya, but now that that component I think comes a lot into our security training. Um, obviously, which obviously certain parts I can't talk about too much, but they do have quite a focus on defusing situations with with passengers um obviously air rage being a big concern how to stop things before they get to that point of having a physical confrontation and that kind of thing people skills and conflict resolution and having empathy with the person even if they're they're upset so um, i'm not sure how it was for the girls back when they were flying but they might have a different view on that yeah we did a bit of that a little bit but um i don't think air rage was such an issue pre 9-11 they didn't focus on it as much it was um they taught us a bit of conflict resolution and then it was always pass it up the line to the senior to the flight service director you know um, ours was more I guess the psychological aspects in an emergency like you know you have so many seconds to establish control while the um, passengers are in a state of negative panic yeah. um, you know that sort of thing rather than just air rage yeah no they, I've spoken to a couple of pilots who have been in situations where uh, they were like one was in a balloon basket and they were able to keep the passengers under control because they're looking at them in the eye and looking around at all of them and as soon as they turned to look at their crew suddenly one of the passengers thought no I'll do what I want 
and all mm. hell broke loose. Yeah. And it, you're right, you've only got seconds and it can all be over in a millisecond when you lose that contact and that connection. Yeah, you have to establish command, yeah. It, this is quite an interesting question for me because um, we very rarely had any issues of security on board the aircraft. There might have been a couple of times when we might have been taking the Australian cricket team across to Perth where they wanted to continue playing poker on <laughs> Um So we had to have a few stern words. And being, um, being the Australian cricket team, and I'm talking about Lily and... Uh, you know, that, that era, they felt that uh, they could do pretty much whatever they wanted to do. Uh, so we went and we asked them to put their tray tables up, um, but they continued to play poker. So then we turned, went to the, to the pilot and he made an announcement that we were turning back to the, um, to the terminal. So they quickly put their tray tables up and uh, did what they were told. But <laughs> it never seemed to be, you know, it's interesting listening and I'm sure it goes on a lot these days, but we very, very rarely had an issue and uh, we could usually talk them around and if we couldn't talk them around, the first officer would come down and have a very stern word with them. But I can't really recall ever having any uh, problems with passengers. God, I feel like I could write a book on problems with passengers. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. probably worse now for Amelia. Yes. Well, I was going it to... is a little. I, I think was... the book now would be called um, I Can't Live Without My Mobile Phone. Logically <laughs> <laughs> yes, attached to their phone. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that seems to be the... Um, <laughs> major cause of conflict these days but um, one major difference um, that we have is that we, we can no longer get our big burly first officer to come down and give them the mm. evil eye so um, that's a bit of a disappointment that we can no longer carry out that threat but um, like you say a, a, an announcement from the captain will usually quiet them down and if not that's when they get some airport appreciation time. Yep. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very nice euphemism I like that. I like <laughs> not mine unfortunately but <laughs> Flight experience 556, you're cleared for takeoff. Imagine sitting in a pilot seat, flying past Sydney Harbour Bridge or the Eiffel Tower, and landing at just about any airport. It's not just a flying experience, it's flight experience. From the roar of the engines to stunning realistic visuals, flight experience puts you in control of a 737 flight simulator. It's so real, your senses actually believe you're flying. For a gift that's really unique, get a voucher online at flightexperience.com.au or call 1-800-737-800. Flight experience, the ultimate flying experience. I'm Matt Hall. Hi, I'm Matt Hall. I'm Matt Hall. No, I'm Matt Hall. No, I'm Matt Hall. Everyone wants to be Australia's champion Red Bull Air Race pilot, and now you can own a piece of Matt Hall memorabilia. Polos, T-shirts and caps for all shapes and sizes can be found at matthallracing.com. Just go to the online store and you too can be in the loop. Hello, I'm Matt Hall. Want to advertise your business on the Plain Crazy Down Under podcast? Scripts and Voices has teamed up with the boys at Plain Crazy Down Under to bring you an exclusive offer. Scripts and Voices can make your ad to feature on this podcast at a specially reduced cost. That includes writing your ad, voiceover, backing music and production. To get your ad made in time for the next podcast, check out scriptsandvoices.com. Follow the link and send us an email. For advertising rates and packages, please see the Plain Crazy Down Under website. Hey, this is Rob Mark from JetWine.com. And you know what? When I'm really, really bored, I listen to... what? What's the name of that 
podcast again? Um, pl- playing, playing crazy down under. Right by the the guys from the outback. You mean the steakhouse? Yeah, yeah, they they run the steakhouse. I think. Oh, with the blooming onion. Oh, right. Man. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. that's those guys. So I, on the Barbie and yeah. So Foster's. Well, I knew they were doing something. for beer. Yeah, that, those are the guys. Great podcast. Love the food too, guys. Keep up the good work. I like my medium rare. <laughs> they call that a promo? Oh dear. www.airplanegeeks.com. Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Podcast Network. TheVoicesInYourHead.com The um, the term air rage now that's that's one that uh, we hear a lot these days uh, when we're talking about these sorts of issues. Is that the? I mean, we live in a much more stressed time these days, and of course, uh, also going through you know the, just to get into the airports an almost dehumanising experience these days. I guess Amelia, you'd, you'd probably agree that the incidence of air rage would be on the rise. Uh, definitely, um, I think it's not something that's just confined to the airlines though I think it's something that happens everywhere um, but yes definitely even in the in, in the time since I started flying um, much more severe um, I find it escalates a lot more quickly and it's usually over the silliest most trivial things mm-hmm. it'll be um, telephones um, not wanting to stow bags with laptops in them not wanting to switch off iPods that kind of thing whereas when I first started flying it was usually because someone had had a few too many beers in the terminal and just was feeling a little bit confrontational so it's, it's, it's changing that quickly. And have they had to um, obviously adjust your training to, to cope with this? Yes, they, they cover the basics. Um, we do um, annual security training as well and there's some things which are always the same but they will adapt the training in response to situations that they've had on board or other airlines have had and they will they will cover that kind of thing. Janine, back in, back in your day when you were flying... Uh, did you find that the passengers had similar sorts of attitudes to, say, uh, Mr. Ansett with regard to, uh, you know, flight attendants and, and how they would treat them and how they would speak to them? Look, I have to say it was a, it, it was a completely different era. Flight attendants were, gee, it was a hard, it still is a hard job to get into and it was supposed to be very glamorous and our passengers always seemed to, um, I don't know, not say this, be respectful, but... It just seemed that they were, it was very expensive to fly in those days. Um, we, we didn't have any discount airlines, of course. So to be on a plane uh, was very expensive. And they just, I don't know, they just seemed to be grateful. They used to love the service and then they loved having a chat, you know, with the flight attendants. So it seemed to me that there was totally different attitude. There were no mobile phones. Certainly wasn't the security issues that people go through now. Um, I guess just a different era. I, was, I, th- I think I was very, very lucky. I think I think the, the price aspect is, you've hit the nail on the head there. The, the, it's the, the flying back then was the equivalent of flying business class now. And yeah. you look at the general attitudes of people in business first, they're quite different to what goes on back in economy. And a lot of people will pay next 
to nothing and then complain about the fact that they're getting crap service and, and mm. you know, getting all these problems and all these nickel and dimes, but they're perpetuating the problem because mm. they've actually paid the minimum they can and the airlines, instead of trying to educate the passengers on the benefits of paying a bit more and getting better, are just following. And, and I actually was just writing an article this morning for publication about this. Uh, it's We don't need re-regulation. We just need some education. Mm. And people need to realize. Yeah, I know. I know, but people just need to realize that, you know, if we go back to regulation, it's going to be back to the days when no one flew because no one could afford it. And, you know, now you look at, I mean, my mum comes down to visit her kids once a year when she can from overseas. You know, we, we travel quite often around Australia. You couldn't do that back when it was uh, five, $600 a seat instead of $100 a seat. Or even 20 Tiger is the epitome of this. It's, um, it's amazing that you get people who have paid almost nothing to travel from, say, Melbourne to Darwin and then turn around and complain about it, you know, about how crap it was or or like, you know, that we're paying next to nothing. You're doing things that your parents dreamed about, let alone your grandparents, and you're paying less than it costs you to drive from uh, Melbourne to Sydney. I would say that the thing with Tiger Airways from the time that I flew them is uh, uh, once you're in the air, I mean, the, the service from the cabin crew was was as good as you'd find anywhere else. It's, uh, you know, I, th- I think the issue that I have with them personally is uh, when they cancel flights and don't help you out. Yeah, the, the, when things go wrong, that's when you find out about an airline or any other business for that matter. Yeah, but once we were in flight, I mean, uh, the, you know, the, their service is comparable to what you'd find on Virgin or Jetstar, you know, when you're talking about low-cost carriers. That, that's uh, that's not really the issue. I, I think one of the big changes too, and you, um, you, you you wouldn't find this, I guess, uh, on long haul flights, but you know, the principle now that if you want to buy something to eat on the aircraft that you have to fork out the cash for it, that's that's a big uh, cultural change that I, I still think people struggle to get their mind around sometimes. H- how do you think, Janine, they would have coped with that back in your day? Oh, for goodness sake, they wouldn't have coped with that at all. They paid <laughs> a lot of money. They were going to enjoy themselves and it was a full time, it was a full experience for them. We used to, uh, on the uh, Melbourne Perth flight, we'd have uh, a seafood uh, uh, open platter type uh, uh, service for the first class, and that was, you know, that had they had cheese and they had fruit and they had dessert and they had sparkling wine and it it was full on. And even in economy, if you asked somebody to to pay for something, uh, it, we had to charge for you know beers and wines in economy, and even that was a bit of a struggle because these people paid a lot of money to be on those flights. It was a big deal to go. For, to, to go on a plane in those days, yeah. and I think it's—I uh, I just think it's a sign of the times with the with the uh, discount airlines, and it's just the way the, the people are now. They expect everything for nothing. Yeah. It's no longer privileged fly it's just something that they can do at the drop of a hat yeah and that's that's that whole business class cost if the costs you were paying back then to fly you know people talk about how good it was and all that well yeah go fly first see how good it is there and that's the same amount of money you're paying then yep it's exactly right it was very expensive in those days very expensive to fly yeah and that i think is what everyone's lost sight of they, they still want that golden era i'm paying a freaking fortune and i'm getting service like i'm paying for it but they want to pay nothing for it exactly yeah. although from a personal point of view i still fly a fair bit as a passenger and when i left Qantas, i probably still am a service snob i love the first class <laughs> service you know and i would sit up there all the time if i could flying international and soak it up However, I really appreciate that I can get a cheap fare on Jetstar to nip across to Bangkok and I don't mind paying for food or blankets or videos or whatever. You just accept that that's the way it is now and I'm grateful that the costs are so low that I can do that. Yeah, you, yeah. Eat, you eat what you choose to eat really, don't you? Therein lies the problem is that not everyone is, is, is like that and they don't understand that in exchange for a cheap fare you might have to pay 
a few extras. And like yeah. you said earlier, education is the key. I think, um, I'm not sure if you guys have heard of Galen David, the Sky Steward, but he's on a, a one-man quest to educate the world about um, polite flying. Oh, oh my God, good luck. good luck to him. He calls it <laughs> We should calls get him on the show. <laughs> and he's actually made up a safety card, which is a manners card for flying. And he says to people, if you are sick of the bad manners, print it out and leave it in the seat pocket on your next flight. <laughs> Oh, that's gold. <laughs> it's pretty good. So I think I think a lot of crew are trying to trying to spread the word. But um, you just reminded me earlier talking about um, the expectations that people have. There's a really great skit on YouTube um, where a comedian is talking about the magic of flying, and he's talking about everyone getting upset about security and paying for this and paying for that. He's like, "You're on a chair in the sky. You're flying. Like it's amazing. <laughs> Don't forget how amazing it is that that you are doing this." Yep. Um, and I think that's that's what a lot of people have lost sight of that that they're flying for for forty fifty dollars. They're doing a journey that could have taken you know Perth to Sydney would have taken weeks back in the day. You know. And consider that we've only been flying for just over a hundred years, and you know the the, the first first flight by the Wright brothers wasn't even the, the length of a 747's wingspan. Mm. And, and now we're going from point to point around the planet and the latest aircraft coming out, if you don't carry as much uh, cargo or passengers, you can fill it full of fuel. And like a 777-200, I think it is, or the 300ER, they'll, they can go from like Perth to London nonstop. And that's, that's, it's just amazing. Like exactly like this comedian saying, you're on a chair in the sky at 30, 40,000 feet and complaining on the fact that your Diet Coke is slightly warm. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and here's a question for all three of you. I've heard that the one drink that most flight attendants hate to serve is Diet Coke. Have you ever encountered that? No, that's a new one on me. Okay, this is a bunch of American flight attendants. We're talking about the drink they all hated to serve was Diet Coke because it frothed so madly at altitude. Ah, now, it does yeah. if you add a spartane to it or sweetener and drink it first up at a 6 a.m. start, gives you a kick. <laughs> Tanya's tips for getting by jet lag. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we used to do on an early start. Okay. Sure. <laughs> add, add sweetener to Diet Coke and down it, it gets you through the flight. <laughs> I'll have to remember it that next time I'm <laughs> <laughs> But I'm, I never had problems serving it, other than the fact that if you were doing a flight to LA, you got really sick by the end of it of, give me a Diet Coke, give me a Diet Coke. No, please, no thank you, none of that. That's what's annoying about Diet Coke. I'd have to agree. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. No, because uh, I guess it's also maybe how they're serving it over there in terms of they were serve, trying to pour it directly onto the ice, whereas perhaps yeah. nowadays everyone's just like, here's your glass with ice, here's your, yeah. here's your can. Here's your Go can, for- yeah. Yeah, there's no time to pour it. You're busy throwing biscuits at people. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's have a, a talk about a couple of uh, aspects of being a flight attendant just before we wrap this up, ladies. Uh, Tony, you were talking about bids to go on, on certain sectors. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm intrigued by that concept. How does that work? Um, it's computerised. Well, um, yeah, it always was. Um, you get the bid book before the start of each bid period, which for Qantas was eight weeks. You'd go through the book and it would have every sector that was being flown and what the crew requirement was. Then you would go into the computer, sign on um, and put your preferences in. Then when the bidding closed, the computer would do a bid run and allocate the trips in order of seniority. So the more senior you were, the more likely you were to get your choice. And was that limited to um, to international flights or is it, does it work that way um, for domestic flights? Well, we had a similar system when I was with Australian Airlines domestically as well, yes. But I don't know how all airlines do it, but... Um, um, that's certainly how Qantas did it. So the poor little newbies that had just come out online from training um, got stuck doing South Africa back-to-back. 
because no one wants to do South Africa. So um, that's all they do for a long time because um, they don't have the bidding power, I suppose, to get the trips they want. And is it always seniority-based? or? You know? It's seniority-based, yes. Um, and Janine, I guess back in your day, was it a case of uh, you got to choose or you were just you went where you were told to go? Uh, oh, no, we had what they call blocks, and uh, that was uh, your whole month of flying. So you could... Um, look at days off, uh, you could look at trips, you could, in those days we used to have um, quite long slips if we, if we went to Darwin, we'd have three and four days off up there. So we were able to uh, choose a block that suited us, but uh, it, yes, it was all um, seniority based as well. So if the, um, you know, the newer ones got what was left over and the uh, more senior girls uh, well, really could manage their lives quite beautifully because they knew exactly what they were going to do for the whole month ahead. Yeah, it does, seniority has its benefits. Uh, you, you get the same thing, Amelia? Um, it really uh, varies depending on the airline that you work for. And um, another thing that's happening um, in the last couple of years is a lot of airlines are bringing in uh, what they call contract flight attendants. So they work for the company, um, they work for an airline, they wear the same uniform as the other flight attendants, but they're employed by subsidiary companies. In um, that case, those flight attendants usually have little to no bidding. What they might get is bidding for days off or reserve, but they won't actually get to choose specific flights. When I worked for a regional airline, we had a request system. So you got four requests per month. So you could use that for days off. Um, You could use two days together to get a weekend. You could request a specific flight or to work with a friend. Um, and that system, the airline was quite small, so it wasn't computerised. It was just pretty much writing what you wanted next to your name on a sheet in the crew room, <laughs> and they put it into the <laughs> roster. So um, I actually had a trick with that um, to get what I wanted. A lot of the crew would put the dates that they wanted off, but they wouldn't put the date they made the request. So when it came to um, trying to allocate it, the uh, rostering officers didn't know who made which request when. And I would always go in and put that I'd made it on the first day of the month, even if I hadn't. (laughs) (laughs) So I would actually, and by default, they had to give me what I wanted because they couldn't (laughs) tell who made the request after me or before me. That's gold. I'm a bit ashamed to admit it, but I got whatever I wanted every month. (laughs) (laughs) It's all about gaming the system, isn't it? It is. Once you notice this, you can get what you want. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's sort of like the famous pilot story of uh, you know, the, the aircraft are uh, sitting waiting to go and the tower says, all right, who's who's next up? And uh, someone imitates the uh, voice of another pilot, goes, eyes oh, is united, the little guy can go ahead of us. And the tower says, all right, little, you know, clears the little guy to go. And it's actually been the guys in the little little aircraft <laughs> cockpit that have done that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's gaming the system. It's It's gold. <laughs> Okay, we're, we're coming around on time on this one. There's there's so much more we could go through, no doubt. But, uh, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but let's let's cut straight to the good bit. What juicy stories can you tell? Have any of you got any stories from um, what people like Tani, you, you mentioned that uh, it wasn't bad when Gareth Evans was on because he'd be busy working. Uh, any that we can do that the statute of limitations won't come back and get us for? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I could name so many names and I don't dare, even though I no longer work for Qantas. I still would hesitate to name names. Of course, we used to get a lot of celebrities up the front. Some 
fantastic, some not so. Um, can't go there, can tell you a lot of X-rated stories another time about behaviour of passengers. And again, I probably shouldn't go there either. <laughs> I'll just have to write that book one day. Yeah, it sounds like it <laughs> under a nom de plume. How, how about you, Janine? Uh, well, yeah, similar. Um, we had a lot of uh, the early celebrities and their misbehaviour as well. Um, just one that uh, caused me a great deal of shame uh, was I was doing a flight from Melbourne to Canberra and I had Tammy Fraser at the time in this flight at the time. She was in that, we were on the DC-9 and she was in the uh, front row and it was an evening flight and of course the dinner was to be served and she'd been down for the Melbourne Cup and she had the most beautiful hat sitting on the spare seat beside her and uh, we're busily doing our uh, our uh, dinner service and unfortunately the tray that I was carrying ended up on her beautiful hat yes. and and ruined it and I've never seen anybody so gracious in saying as we're trying to clean this um, meat I think it was some sort of meat dish off her beautiful hat saying she was um, saying how she never really liked that hat anyway oh. and uh, I've, I've never never forgotten it because I was very embarrassed I was a, and she was just so gracious and I will, I will always be grateful to her for that. <laughs> you reckon that it happened these days, Amelia? I have to say, pretty much any story worth telling um, isn't suitable for the telling. So. <laughs> <laughs> you reckon um, if you ruined a uh, prominent, uh, a prominent uh, person's hat these days, you'd probably be uh, sued or something? Yes, mm. probably. <laughs> yeah, the times they um, have a chance. All I'm going to say about that is if you only knew. Yeah. <laughs> if you only knew what goes up on there, uh, up in up at 30,000 feet, um, there's, a, there's a lot that goes on that, that passengers are completely oblivious to. Um, let's just say it's a very fun job. It's great for people watching and the memories will last you a lifetime. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I have, I have one more question uh, from an airplane geek's point of view. Um, favourite aircraft, uh, Janine, we'll start with you. Uh, my favourite aircraft was the 727-200 series. Yep, and uh, that's interesting you say that, but Deb Laurie actually told us that the 727 was her favourite aircraft to fly. Lovely, lovely aircraft. Lovely to work on after working on DC, DC-3s and DC-9s, um, it, and it was the start of the big one, so it was a lovely aircraft. Okay, and, and lovely in terms of space for you and amenities and things like that? Oh, oh the galleys were heaven. <laughs> after That's... working on a friendship galley, I'll tell you what, it was just wonderful. <laughs> yeah, I guess the same for you, Amelia. If you ever went for, like, well, you went from regional small aircraft, and then yes. if you wound up on something like a 737 size equivalent, that would be the same kind of difference, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's like different plans. I have to say, I do like the 737. Um, it's a nice mix between um, having a, a big enough size that passengers can be comfortable, but small enough to, to have a good cabin. So you feel like you're not losing control of a big space. For regional aircraft, I really have a soft spot for the um, the F100. A nice, again, it's a nice size plane. You feel like you're on a real plane, um, but <laughs> small enough that you can you can talk to passengers. Um, you can have a nice time with them. You can see what's going on, and the galley's not too tiny. In- interesting, because the uh, 737 is basically a, uh, it's got the same fuselage as the 727 with that three abreast seating. So uh, yeah, no fun that uh, fun that the 72, then the 73, they're all pretty cool, but. Uh, yeah, the, the Fokker 100, that was only, what, about 60 to 80 passengers, was it? Um, when I flew it, we had uh, we carried, firstly, it was 96, and then it went to 100. 
So okay. it actually, um, it was it was the the second version, the Mark 100. I think it used to be, uh, it had a different designation. So this was the the stretched version of it. Yeah, which no, because I think it, is in service now with a lot of airlines. Yep, it is. It was the F28 was the original one, and mm. then they made the Fokker 100. Um, again, Deborah was talking to us about when she was with KLM flying the 70 and the 100. But okay, what about you, Tanya? Oh, I always had a soft spot for the classics. The um, you know, the older jumbos, I guess. Um, even though the the 400s had the bunks and the tail, and that was nice. I mean, the classics had the flight engineer; they were good guys. And I'm quite frankly, at the risk of liable, I don't like Airbus because they feel like a bus and not an aircraft. <laughs> and and also, it scares me that aircraft are getting bigger because you know you walk through a full aircraft, and the vibes you get from people just suck it out of you. And the thought of having more and more people crammed in, the, the negative energy that that can generate is horrid. I mean, it's all very well if you're having a good flight and there's a good positive energy there. don't want to sound like a hippie, but um, Too late. if you start getting <laughs> aggro people on a flight and you've got a whole lot of people jammed in there like sardines, it can turn very quickly. It's, yeah, it's not a nice thought. It is not a nice thought. So I say bring back the classics. <laughs> Contagious and, uh, and that mob mentality swinging around to get you. It does. Uh. Yeah, it can. You've got to be very careful not to lose control of that. Yeah. Cool. Amelia, did you want to mention your blog? I have a blog, as you know, Tray Tables Travels. Um, I write about the world of flying, um, various issues, and I believe I do have a few of those humorous stories on there, which aren't really tellable <laughs> here. So if you'd like to have a look, <laughs> it's um, it's traytables-travels.blogspot.com. One of our favourites too, Grant, isn't it? We uh, quite often check that one have a bit of a chuckle. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it was uh, from when you, Amelia, when you flew with Tiger was when I first made contact with you because I, I po- you posted a trip report about Tiger and I posted some comments back. Oh, yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that was a while back. Okay, well, is there, is there the, the floor is open, ladies. Do you have any comments or anything you'd like to mention while we're all here? Oh, I just say good luck to all the crew of the future. It's a great job, as Amelia said. You know, there, there is a lot of stress involved with the training and the job, but it's well worth it. It's a great industry to be in. Cool. Janine? I think that says it all for me. I, I loved my time as a flight attendant and uh, I'd recommend it to anybody. Cool. And Amelia? Yes, I have to agree with the others. It's a great job and even if you're having a bad day, you're at 30,000 feet, you can look out the window and there's always a great view. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Absolutely. Good point. Well, ladies, it's been a really fascinating discussion and as Grant said earlier, we could probably uh, chat about this for hours, but uh, we'd better leave it here for now and perhaps, uh, you know, we can, uh, you know, if our listeners have any questions they want to pose to us in the forums, we might uh, be able to touch base with you again sometime in the future. Absolutely, no problem. I've still got three or four things on my to, on my to chat list, so we never know, we might get you all together for another, a part two once uh, <laughs> uh, we're able to settle everyone down. <laughs> and of course, Amelia, people can also follow you on Twitter. Yes, yes, they can. Um, they Feel free to send any questions my way and I might even uh, do a blog post about it for you. That's excellent, ladies. Thanks so much for your time on the podcast today. Amelia Kelly, Tanya Tracy and uh, Janine Murdoch, thanks so much. Well, there you go, Steve. The whole goal we had when we went into putting this episode together was to do a comparison of what it was like back then in the early 70s, 80s, the golden age of uh, airline travel here in Australia against the 90s and now. So uh, I think this episode has really helped bring all that out. It's it's really given us a great comparison between the times, what it was like in the golden age compared to the uh, the more modern days. Yeah, it's certainly true, isn't it? And I mean, nobody would be surprised uh... 
uh, when I say that um, you know service standards have certainly changed over the years, and uh, these days it's more it seems to me about getting people from place to place rather than having an overall experience. And you can obviously tell from uh, the way that Janine was saying there, the way she was trained at ANSET back in the 70s, that obviously it was much more than about you know having a, an experience, uh, something that wasn't so day to day for the average person. Whereas today, sort of you know you can throw 50 bucks down and you know pay a stack full of fees on top of that, and you can fly up to Sydney pretty much any time you like, for example. Back in the 70s, that wasn't so much an option for the average bloke. Well, like we were saying during the episode, look how much was being paid. It cost a lot of money to fly between Melbourne and Sydney. It was the equivalent of doing first class these days. You know, it's people say, oh, I bring back the old days. I miss I miss the beautiful service and the wonderful smiling people. Well, if you want it back, pay. I, I don't think anyone has a right to complain about lack of service when they're paying less than it costs for a taxi to go from one side of town to the other and they're traveling between two cities. Yeah, and the public, that, yeah. that's the bit that gets me about all this. It's it's like, yeah, the golden era was the golden era and you paid golden prices. The, the, the cost of going between, say, Melbourne and Bangkok was what you'd pay for a first-class ticket now. Yeah, that's very true. And we talk about this a lot on the show, don't we? And um, obviously, too, people are voting with their feet, uh, generally speaking. I mean, you do have the choice still to fly full service in this country domestically, uh, and that's obviously uh, the choice to fly Qantas uh, mainline. Uh, of course, most people... You know, from a and you know the cost of living is very high, so people are voting with their wallets and with their feet, and they're they're, they're choosing the the jet stars and the Virgin Blues and the and the Tiger Airways of, of this world. And yep. yeah, it certainly is a different standard. And I think the other thing that's interesting too is that people's expectations are differently, and we just live in a much more rushed and rude society these days. To to be honest, every time I fly, I see some people, not all, but there are there are passengers on every flight that treat flight attendants appallingly and speak to them oh, yeah. like they're you know they're lower than dirt and. Uh, you know, that's not something I think that perhaps would have happened so much back in the 70s and, you know, probably started to come back in, you know, during Tanya's time. And, and now it's it's more commonplace, unfortunately. Yeah, no, definitely. You've got you've they've got some real scum flying on the aircraft these days who, who are expecting the world for nothing. And uh, I mean, you know, look, I'm one of the people who will go, OK, I don't want to pay that amount. I'll pay the lower amount. I'll go with Virgin, uh, but I'll, I'll book in advance. I'll take less luggage and I'll pay less money for my flight. But you know what? I'm not going to complain about the service as so long as the aircraft's reliable, clean and on time. You know, and the people on board at least manage to smile as best they can. I'm OK with that because I know that I've paid a little less money. But if I'm going on a long haul and we're trying to make a bit of a voyage out, of it and, and have some fun, I'll try and pay the extra and get up to business class or things like that to, to have a, an experience, to, to have the space, the quiet the service, that kind of thing. I, I'm not going to pay dirt cheap on Jetstar or Tiger and then complain that I'm not getting first class service. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there who do that. And, and there's a lot of people now who are expecting top quality service, but they've only paid $40 for their ticket. And that's where the problem is. Yeah. With all that said though, Grant, it's still uh, pretty obvious from listening to the three ladies talk there that it's an exciting career, a really interesting job, and let's face it, how many jobs can you uh, can you do where you can fly from one end of the country to the other, or you know, from from one country to another on a on a regular basis and get paid for the privilege? So you know, if you, if you're looking to be air crew and uh, you know perhaps pilot is not something that you're looking at, then this is certainly a very viable alternative, and uh, it'll be a wonderful job from the standpoint of travel, and um, and I'd say yeah. that the benefits are pretty good too. Yeah, no, look, it's it's still an amazing job to be in. You talk to a lot of flight attendants these days, and uh, they they do 
agree that it's it's still a wonderful job despite all the changes, the hassles, the the uh, more intense work environment, and the uh, the the less glamour and so on. But it, it's still an amazing an amazing opportunity if you get the chance to take it. So definitely not saying don't take the job on. Just uh, be aware it's a lot different to what it was back in the seventies and eighties. So a huge thanks there to Janine Murdoch, Tanya Tracy. In fact, it was great that Tanya came back after the last time we were on. And, you know, <laughs> glad we didn't scare you off, Tanya. So we really appreciate you uh, spending the time with us. And of course to Amelia Kelly, and we're uh, we're pretty hopeful too, Grant, that Amelia will uh, be uh, back with us sometime soon. And uh, yep. if you want to uh, check out her blog, that's traytables-travels.blogspot.com, and uh, post any questions you like up there. And Amelia, as she said, uh, she'll be quite happy to uh, answer your questions, anything to do with uh, with the career path, with the job, anything you like. So uh, take advantage of that, folks. And uh, I think she's also uh, Trey Tables, is she on Twitter? Yes, she is. Trey Trey Tables Travels, pretty much all one word. Trey Tables TV. We'll pop a link to that in the show notes anyway, Grant, and uh, people can follow her. It's quite an entertaining uh, Twitter stream to follow. Yep, definitely is. And, uh, yeah, all going well. Maybe in a few more months later this year or early next year, we might get the three ladies back again to have another chat. Excellent, folks. Well, thanks very much for joining us. We certainly hope you enjoyed the show. We'll be back with you again in a couple of weeks from now. But until the next time we meet, just remember this. It's What's Down Under that counts. You've been listening to Playing Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website www.playingcrazydownunder.com or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website or email us at plaincrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. Production and editing by Steve Vischer. This has been a Southern Skies online media podcast. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Well, if you want to grab the headphones, that'll mean you're a bit more spontaneous than having to... I'll be right back. Okay. Sorry, ladies. Isn't this fun? (laughs) (laughs) This will be in the bloopers. Oh, you never know. (laughs) Yeah, the other day we realised we didn't have enough bloopers, so we actually set out to make some. Oh, no. How do you do that without sounding totally corny? Feed me sugar. Oh, right. Yeah, okay. Got it. <laughs> Steve had Steve had the recording light just after on, and I had just had a uh, triple scoop of the uh, gelati from just down the road that they make oh, in premises. Stop it. Mm. Oh, oh, look, it might be warmer up here and sunny, but we have no gelati. Your loss. I've got some headphones, guys. Unlike the flight attendant, I actually did come back with that uh, 
See, you folks can say this stuff. <laughs> I get in enough trouble just saying the word trolley dolly. It hasn't really gone away, but obviously now. Um... Oops. Hello. I think we just lost Amelia. Hello? Yeah. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> it was, yeah. it was a, uh, my computer clicked something itself. It's, it's got a mind of its own. <laughs> um, or even 20. Yeah, well, let's not go to Tiger. <laughs> <laughs> we, we don't talk about that airline. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not just because they won't advertise with us. No. <laughs> it's, There's a really, um, sorry. You know. I was going to say. I was just going to sorry. <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? I guess I better update it now. I've mentioned it. So <laughs> I have to think of something good to write about. Puts the pressure on now, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah so I guess yeah. I know what I'm doing later. Yeah. <laughs>